0: We're going through a series called The Good Life. We're taking James chapter 3 and 4, and he talks about deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom, and he talks about that being part of how we demonstrate the good life, and the good life is deeds done in the humility or gentleness that comes from wisdom. The more we understand and are wise, the more the way we respond to self and others will end up being gentle, and in that, James calls attention to some things, some influences that create trouble in the world at large and in the church in particular. And that's what he zeroes in on in the uh, middle part of James chapter 4. Mark talked about materialism last week. And we'll, I'm sorry, Mark talked about judgment last week, about speaking against your neighbor. And we're going to talk about materialism this week. And these are Christian sins in that James is targeting these things because they are happening inside the fellowships, not outside. Now, some of the things he points out happens out there and in here, but these things he seems to be targeting things that happen within the confines of the fellowships that he's writing to, Jewish-Christian fellowships. With that in mind, listen to what he says in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. He says, now listen, you who say. Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And when he says anyone who knows the good to do and doesn't do it, sins, James is not pointing the finger out there to people who probably don't know any better. He's pointing the finger within the church confines. And I guess the question is, what exactly is James objecting to? What does he mean when he says, don't make these kind of plans? It sounds like he's opposing capitalism. Don't make a business plan? Is that what he's saying? Can we can we agree that he's not saying um, add a tagline to a business plan? Okay, so you go and say a business plan, you present a proposal, and then you go, you know, if it's the Lord's will. you know, And then you do it at the end of the proposal. And, you know, so what God does is that you go with the business proposal, you don't say the magic words if it's God's will, and then because you didn't say Simon Says, No, God says, you didn't say Simon says, and then he blows you up. You know, so can we agree that that's not what James is talking about here? God doesn't play Simon says. So what does it mean when God says we should be careful about making plans to go to this or that city, make money? What's the problem with that? What's the problem with money? What's the deal with the love of money in the Bible? That's what we're going to look at, and that's something that, interestingly, he's not pointing the finger out there relative to loving money. He's pointing to, within the church confines, to what degree, then, does this create a temptation for us? That's what we'll look at. Um, Again, when James points out things in the Bible in general, it's pointing out not only what we do, but really why we do what we do. God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, and so one thing we do know then, in terms of this, what he's prohibiting, it has to do not really with where we go, but with why we go there. Not what we do, but why we're doing what we're doing. The thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In order to understand the problem, we need to understand some things about money. money. And the first thing we'll identify is that money is deceptive. Deceptive. It says in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one. And despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this context, Jesus casts God and money as rival deities. Again, even in the text, money is capitalized. God has a capital G. Money has a capital M. God and money here are being depicted as rival deities. And in what way is that true? Well, God promises to protect us, but so does money. If you have a bunch of money, when you're in need, money can afford protection. In that sense, it is like a God. God promises to provide for us, to provide what we need, but so does money. If you have enough money, you can leverage that money To get just about anything you want. Just go to Amazon.com. Get just about anything on Amazon.com. God God demands loyalty. But so does money. It's something that attracts devotion to itself. God and money have that power. Once you move in that direction, you are pulled in. Whether towards God or towards money. The deception of money... Is that it makes promises that some of which it fulfills, but there are disclaimers there are things that money can't fulfill it can't it it can't do what it promises to do um, but it's here there might have been disclaimers, but there aren't, but that's what we'll end up finding some. Um, Money promises, but there are a few things that should appear at the end of the ads. You know the way it is with the uh, pharmaceuticals sometimes? You take this thing, and I I really love this one, Chantix. So this is if you want not to smoke. So what you're trying to blow up is smoking here. So here's, here's the problem. Here's the disclaimers on Chantix. Some people have had changes in behavior, hostility, Agitation, depressed mood, suicidal thoughts or actions, so it will help you to stop smoking, but the chances is you could kill yourself <laughs> I'm, okay i'm i so sorry we have a farm d I'm not blowing up. Okay, if, if you, your family or caregiver notice agitation, hostility, depression, or changes in behavior, thinking or mood that are not typical for you, or you develop suicidal thoughts or actions, anxiety, panic, aggression, anger, mania, abnormal sensations, hallucinations, paranoia, or confusing, confusion, stop taking Chantix and take out a pack of cigarettes and smoke them. <laughs> Some people can have serious skin reactions while taking Chantix, some of which can be life-threatening. These can include rash, swelling, redness, and peeling of the skin, (laughs) swelling of the face, mouth, and throat that can cause trouble breathing. If you have these symptoms or have a rash with peeling skin or blisters in your mouth, Stop taking Chantix and get medical attention right away. before It keeps going on. Before taking Chantix, tell your doctor if you have a history of heart or blood vessel problems. If you have new or worse heart or blood vessel symptoms during treatment, tell your doctor, and for God's sake, take out a pack of cigarettes and smoke them. <laughs> so there, there might be there's some things money follows through on, but there's some things it can't follow through on. There should be disclaimers. Solomon was one who got down the road towards affluence as few in history have ever done so, brings some penetrating observations relative to money. Listen to this. There's some wisdom here. It's in your worship folder from the book of Ecclesiastes, which is Solomon's depiction of life. Solomon was a very wise individual. Again, he didn't make perfect choices, but he understood things. Listen to what he says about money. Whoever loves money never has money enough. That's interesting, isn't it? Whoever has money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner? except to feast his eyes on them. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. It, it, it gives some of the small print at the end of get a bunch of money. And adds some small print. Know that but if you get a lot of money, you're going to have to protect it. And if you protect it and put your faith in it, it's going to take away some of your sleep. And again, that, it's not just doing away with money. Solomon had a bunch of money, but he was realistic about the price involved in having it. Um, I like it. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. What, Bible, what the Bible says about money is that money takes as much as it gives. It offers to protect us, but in turns require that we protect it. And you know where we're going to find the difference between God and money or God and any other source of security? When God protects us, we don't need to protect him because he is without needs. He gives and doesn't need to take in order to give, and he's about the only one of whom we can say that. You can put your faith in money, and we, but money requires that we protect it. We've got to put it in the bank. We've got to be careful with it. And in being careful with it, it can keep us up at night. I wonder how my stock, well, I don't have stocks, but I, if I did, I would wonder how they were doing. Things offer to provide for us, but requires that we provide for them. In fact, that's why money makes a great servant, but a lousy master. Money is a good servant, but a lousy master. And that's why the Bible would, and we'll talk about steps that we can take to make sure that that relationship is clean. It's like, it was the same thing with having a king. And when God said to Israel, don't have a king, it wasn't because God is insecure you know, like God saying, oh, I just, go ahead, choose a king, don't choose me. <laughs> Jesus, they don't like me anymore. I know, Father, they don't then. Like it's not, God is not insecure. He's not looking at himself. He's looking, and here's the deal with having a king. And again, it's, I mean, we don't have a president now, but in the context, when this was happening in Israel, because what he said is, if you have a king, what do you have to do? You have to take care of the king. If I'm your king, God says you don't have to you don't have to take care of me, but if you have a human king, you have to take care of him, and you'll have to send some of your kids to him to have him serve, and he'll take taxes, etc, et cetera. It's not when God talks about don't love money, he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking about us because money makes promises as does he, but money needs to be protected, and he doesn't. Money needs to be provided for, and he doesn't need to be provided for. How can we put money in its place? It might seem like we're saying with money, you can't live with it, you can't live without it. However, the Bible is pretty realistic. It doesn't just say don't get money, because even if you don't have money, you could be materialistic and lament the fact that you don't have it. See, what money is about, it's about, well, remember the movie Ghostbusters? No, Mike, I really don't. It was because, you know, Ghost what? Yeah. Anyways, there was a song, and the tagline of the song, Who are You Gonna Call? Ghostbusters. And that's the deal. Who are you gonna call? And when it talks about money and devotion, that really is the issue that it's, that's what it's getting at. Who are you gonna call? God or money? And the one that you call, it will impact Your ability to receive what the individual says that they will provide. And that's what um, the Bible points out. So, how can we put money in its place? Look what it says in Hebrews 13. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I want you to notice this. What's the difference? What is the connection between this statement and what follows? Listen to what it says. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because money is filthy lucre and you don't want any of it. It's not what it says. It says because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you know why, God, you know why it's saying that? Do you know why it's saying that? Because what is money saying? I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's what money is saying. And God says, let your life be free from the love of money, because although money claims that it will never leave and forsake you, what God says, that's not true. But I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. See, when it comes to being threatened, we need to call somebody. We need to find a source of security. So here's the Ghostbuster question. Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? And it's difficult because wealth is deceptive. Wealth is deceptive. Um, at some point, we can call on but God and money, but on some points, those roads diverge. And they go in different directions. And if we're going to go with God, we're going to go in this direction. If we're going to go with money, we're going to go in that. Uh, the roads will divide. It's tricky, though, when you look at the Bible, because the Bible, relative to a theology of money, it's kind of tricky. It's... Um, In the Old Testament, wealth is an indicator, one of the indicators of divine blessing. God says, if you serve me, I'll give you land, seed, and blessing. And what happened to Job? He went through a difficult thing, but when God turned his face back toward him, Job became wealthy again. Abraham was wealthy. It was an indicator of blessing. How about the New Testament? In the New Testament, is wealth an indicator of blessing? Yes, no. New Testament, wealth an indicator of blessing? How about Jesus? Guy with a tunic. Paul? You know what? If you put, that's why those Christian programs that will, I think, deceitfully say, Give God a thousand, and he'll give you two, three, four times as much. Where do those passages get drawn from? The Old Testament. You can't make a case for prosperity as the end. Now, does God meet our needs? Yeah, but you can't say that God will always give. No, he won't, because New Testament doesn't end it. In fact, you know what the difference between the Old and the New Testament is? In the Old Testament, earthly blessings Eclipse heavenly ones. Eclipse eternal ones. Excuse me. That's the way it should be said. Earthly blessings eclipse eternal blessings. Earthly Mm. blessings eclipse forever blessings. What happens in the New Testament? Eternal blessings eclipse temporal ones. So now, on this side of the cross... We no longer have serve money, serve God, and give you a bunch of money. We have commit your life to God, and 100 years from now, you will be in really good fiscal shape. You won't take it with you, but you'll be glad for where you are. Jesus asked a question. What does it profit a man, really? Let's talk about investments. Let's talk about investments. What does it profit a man? if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What does it profit a person if he takes care of and thinks very shrewdly about the 50 years, 60, 70 years of this life? And again, do that. But neglect the eternal balance. Is that a wise investment strategy? Absolutely not, is it? Take care of this side. Take care of that side as well. And Jesus indicates that a lot of the times, well, what did he say? We seek first his kingdom, and we'll see that at the end, and he'll provide for us what we need on this side. Um, this is what James is targeting. Um, it has to do with who they were calling. There's an article in here. I'm going to read that. It's from Base for Grace. Just, I'm going to read it. Follow along with me. We can't live without money, but it's not okay to love it. How can we tell if we love money? Pastor says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The decision to follow Christ cost the first Christians dearly. Converting from Judaism to Christianity amounted to committing financial suicide. In the honeymoon stage of their newfound faith, these believers had joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. As time wore on, many Jewish Christians came to a crossroads. They found it increasingly difficult to offset the reality of earthly hardships with thoughts of heavenly bliss. Financial hardships made it increasingly difficult to hang on for heaven. Some of their friends were choosing to abandon Christianity in order to return to the financial security that Judaism afforded. Two roads stretched out before them. The in-money-we-trust road led them to find shelter in wealth from the uncertainties of life. The in-God-we-trust road encouraged them to find refuge in God rather than in money. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have is an encouragement to trust in God and a warning against relying on wealth for provision and protection. Greed wasn't much of an issue for first-century Jewish Christians. They didn't have enough money to prime the pump of greed. Greed wasn't their problem. Hopelessness was. Because they lacked material resources, they felt exposed and vulnerable, unprotected from the uncertainties of life. King Solomon was the king of Israel when the nation was at the zenith of its security and strength. He revealed that the pursuit of wealth is connected with the search for security. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it, an unscalable wall. That's a good image, isn't it? The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it, an unscalable wall. I'm hiding behind money, and it's going to protect me and provide for me. But there are disclaimers. Solomon observed that wealth gives a sense of safety and security like living in a fortified city or behind an unscalable wall, money promises to protect and provide for those who seek shelter in it. In this respect, money makes godlike claims. God promises, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He assures us that He will neither let us go nor leave us behind. Money also promises never to leave or forsake those who trust in it. The difference between God and money is that God keeps His promises. Solomon exposed the deceitful character of riches. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. But they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. We are constantly bombarded with messages linking wealth and security. We are encouraged to feel safe with money. This is a mistake. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is inherently addictive. Loving money is like loving narcotics. Narcotics have beneficial properties. However, they are to be used cautiously in full realization of their addictive properties they possess. Money is a spiritual narcotic. Rather than hunker down inside a bank account, Solomon exhorts us to find refuge in God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. God is a reliable source of security. This is why Solomon encourages us to transfer our trust from having money in our pocket to having God at our side. According to Jesus, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When our backs are to the wall, we will either trust in God or we will trust in money. Both promise not to leave or forsake you. One of them never will. The lesson is to cultivate confidence in God based on what God says. God says, I will never leave or forsake you. And we're going to have to turn to somebody. We're going to have to call somebody. And the reason why God wants us to direct our attention to his promises is because when the chips are down, we will reach out somewhere. And God wants us to reach out for him. If we understand what God promises, and if we think about those promises, we're going to find that it will be easier to call. You're probably not going to call a number that you haven't committed to memory when the heat is high. When tension exists, the thing that we consciously think about are the thoughts probably most likely to be the ones that we'll grab right away. So what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. I would encourage you to be brilliant at knowing God's promises. Brilliant. In fact, I would say between knowing God's commitments and knowing God's commandments, I would say... Gaze at the former and glance at the latter. Gaze at commitments. Glance at command. Because when push comes to shove, understanding God's commitments will cause you to call out to Him. And that's ultimately what God wants. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Be brilliant in the basics. Make room for God's commitments. So that when that time comes, and it does come for all of us, doesn't it? When you're going to have to call out to somebody. Not far away. Um, <clears throat> money is deceptive. Money is also addictive. Um, look what it says in Luke eight fourteen, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it Unfruitful. You know what we think of when we think of love of money? I like like Donald Duck. Remember Scrooge McDuck? Remember Scrooge McDuck? No, Mike, I don't remember Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> I don't remember any of the TV shows you ever talk about, way before my time. Anyways, Scrooge McDuck and the Donald Duck cartoons. He had he was the guy that was filthy rich, and so he had this pool filled with gold coins. You remember? And he'd jump in the gold coins, and they'd go woof up and there. You uh, I think he was Scottish. <laughs> That was a very helpful thing. So so I've offended anyone here who's got it. Uh, And so what we're we're inclined to believe is that if we don't have a pool filled with with gold coins, we don't love money. You know what loving money is is associated with? It's it's associated with worries. What we love is what we turn to to deal with worries. I think that's what the Bible indicates. So the setup for loving money is worries. Worries. The mechanism that sets up devotion to money doesn't begin with money. It begins with worries. Here's what it says. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. You know how this works? The worries of this life. And here's here's what the worries of this life say. What if? Oh, no. What if? Oh no! And what if? Oh no! What if? Oh no! And then, you know, some of us know that this could go on ad infinitum. And and so when it says what if and oh no, you know what? You know what money says? Here I come to save the day. <laughs> That's what money says. Hey, you're lucky I'm around. And it, it. <laughs> I don't remember Mighty Mouse, Mike. I, don't, I had no idea what song you are singing. I had no idea. That was, okay, let me give you a little lesson, some of you. <laughs> no. There was a cartoon once called Mighty Mouse. Somebody please help me out. Does anybody re- Thank you very much. Okay, again, raise your hand again. If you want to see the old people, there they are. There they are. <laughs> it's still on video. Thank you very much. Um, riches. <laughs> you know what they just said? A yeah, video, and then they said, so are you, Mike. <laughs> John and Abby, they do a really good job back there. Nice guys. I just complimented you, so you want to make sure to strike that from the record. So anything incriminating? Okay. Riches choked by when worries hit our minds and they will. Money rushes onto the scene and it naturally is the place that we turn and God would have us turn to him. Money's like a narcotic. When you have pain, narcotics, pain relief, critical. It doesn't heal the condition necessarily, but it allows us to live with it while the healing happens. And um, the danger is in using narcotics. Again, when dealing with pain, they have their place. The problem is, it's possible to nurture a relationship with narcotics that's divorced from pain, that's more associated with ah, "I'm not tense anymore." I have tension, and narcotics can be a mood-altering way to leave tension. Life. Creates tension, by the way. And narcotics are a way to be addicted to pain relief. Addicted to the lack of tension. I think money is like that as well. Is money necessary? Yeah. Is it important? We have to have it. The only problem is, like narcotics, money is a spiritual narcotic. It is to be used carefully. Understanding that it is inherently addictive and seductive. Uh, Dave Ramsey has some really good things relative to dealing with debt. But reading his book, the one thing I disagreed with, he says money is neutral. It all depends what you do with it. I disagree. Money is not neutral. Is it, it is inherently seductive. It draws away adherence after itself. In that way, it is not neutral. And we have to deal with it carefully. You say, how do we deal with that? It really is about, well, the question I've been asking, who are you going to call? Developing a mindset where God's promises and understanding them cause your mind to be more oriented toward God. Thank you that you promised X, because we will call on someone, and God wants to be the one we call on. Um, I think we're naive about the addictive nature of money. We can be so. Um, There was, I remember, there was a, um, a financial enterprise that indicated, well, store away up a lot of money during the first 65 years of life, you know, so when you turn 65 and retire, you can give it away. Which sounds nice, but you know what the problem is? If you live to protect money. Again, get a retirement. This is not black and white. But if your whole orientation is amassing money in order to have it when you turn 65, probably when you turn 65, it's going to be hard to give it away. There's a guy who had a business, did pretty well in business. And when I talked to him about 10 years ago, he was a millionaire. Talked to this other guy who was a millionaire. Guys were businessmen worked hard, and this individual was calling this other friend of his, telling me about a conversation, and he had just retired fairly recently, this other gentleman, and this friend of mine ended up you know, talking to me, um, and he's on the phone talking to my friend, said, um, you know, hedged around him, hey, how you doing? And, and, and it was, he could tell he was having a hard time getting to what he wanted to talk about. And this friend of mine said, you can't spend it, can you? And he said, no, I can't. And that's exactly why he called. He was a guy who saw another guy that had a lot of money, and he said, what am I going to do? I put away all this money, and now I can't let go of it. And that's it's a testimony to the seduction of money. Money is inherently seductive. So like narcotics, we have to use them. They have their place, but to be used carefully, cautiously. Um, We talk about God blessing the United States with affluence. God's blessing the United States with affluence, which is true. You know, it's a little bit like saying, though, God bless Keystone Drug Treatment Center with a shipment of booze. God bless Keystone with a shipment of oxy. Shipment of drugs. When you look at it, money is a spiritual narcotic, and in blessing this nation, it is both a blessing and a, isn't it? And again, we're just finding some balance here, aren't we? And that's what the Bible would have us to do. Uh, What it says, a couple passages, and then we'll be done. 1 Timothy 6. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The image of addiction is not Marks in the arm necessarily, that can be one. But marks in the wallet. I need a fix. I need another fix because this has got to be really fat or I am unprotected and panicking. And again, all of it, can we all relate to this? Those of us who are moving towards retirement who remember Mickey Mouse. Mighty Mouse and all the Mouse's. It's one thing about the lure of money. It never really goes away, does it? It just applies to different things. I'm more. Con- I'm concerned now about some facets of having or not having money, that are different from the ones I used to have. They change, but the pull of money never stops. Never stops. what it says in Luke 12. Last verse. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will lead, or about your body, what you will wear. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now I like about that? You know how God would have us deal with money? Settle down. Settle down. God is not stingy. He's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. He's not hiding behind some tree waiting for you to make all the right words, making sure you Simon says, make sure you say if it's God's will or not because if not he's going to zap you. Come on. God's not holding out on you. And that's good news because we're going to have to trust him. You have to trust him. Um Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Heard this before. Whatever captures your mind, captures your heart, becomes your true objective. Whatever captures your mind, captures your heart, becomes your true objective. I'm going to say that again. Whatever captures your mind captures your heart and becomes your true objective. What captures your mind? Or, and so you're saying, well, shouldn't I wait? No. Just make sure that your mind stays appropriately aware Not only of the commitments that money makes, but the commitments that God makes. Because he comes through with this, and he will, and this is what he says, he will never leave and forsake you. I want you to think now about some things that threaten you. Some of you are moving towards retirement. Some of you are moving into illness, and you're worried. You've done the math, and you don't know what's going to be there. You feel the tension. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if it runs out? What are you going to do about your kids? Really, you going to be able to provide for your kids? Where are you going to be in twenty years? You feel it? Boy, I don't know if I'm. Here's what God says. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. What he says to you I will never leave you. And never forsake you. You don't have to provide for me. I will provide for you. You don't need to protect me. I will protect you. Money's going to claim to protect you, but God says, I will never leave or forsake you. Ask you a question. Think about that thing that troubles you. Think about God saying, I will never leave you and never forsake you. Do you feel what's happening inside? Do you feel it? It might be just just a touch, something unraveling a little bit. Tension feels choking. In fact, that's what anxiety is choking. what if oh no and you know what ends up happening? God commitments enable you to you felt it though, didn't you? Did you feel the breathing? I will never leave or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Think about your retirement. God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Some of you are facing illness. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You do not walk through this alone. We're going to have a closing song. Just so you know, to connect with God, doesn't allow you to eliminate tension. It helps you to breathe so that you can endure it. And on this side of eternity, that's a good deal. (laughs) Father, thank you for your power and your promises. You don't eliminate tense circumstances. You don't take away Things that cause us to say, what if, oh no, what if, oh no. But in the midst of those things, you do appeal to us to look to you, be mindful of you. You tell us that you'll never leave and forsake us. You would have us call on you. And it's not a black and white thing. It's not an absolute thing. You are patient with us, cultivating responsiveness to you. You're patient. You're gentle. You don't need for it to happen now. You work with us. In fact, you put us in places where we have needs. That's where we are now, many of us, wondering how we'll be provided for, how I'll be protected. And in the darkness, you appeal to us. You whisper. You're very gentle. You don't shout. You tell us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You call us to quiet places. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. I pray that we'll be able to hear that, be able to increasingly put our trust in it. In Jesus' name, amen.